You're listening to Deal Talk with 7MA, providing invaluable insight into investment banking and the M&A space through honest conversations with industry thought leaders, business pioneers, and innovators. We'll pull back the curtain and give you the inside scoop on trends in our targeted industries and provide you the tools to better position your company in today's market. Welcome back to another episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. This episode is the second part of a series discussing the current loan programs in place surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic and their potential impact on your business and ultimately M&A strategy. I'm joined by Andy Johnston, a partner at Seven Mile Advisors, who will be leading this discussion. Thank you, Clayton and Kayla, for joining us today. Andy, I'll pass it over to you to introduce your guests. Thanks, Ariel. I appreciate it. I am Andy Johnston. I'm one of the partners here at the firm, and I'm very pleased to have with me two attorneys from McGuire Woods here to help us explore the topic of the Main Street Lending Program. And as that program is being rolled out to the market, what companies should think about is a program that makes sense for them. So to help set the stage, Clayton and Kayla, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourselves and a quick background to help the audience understand where you're coming from, that would be great. Thanks, Andy. My name is Clayton Stahlbomber. I am a partner in the Debt Finance Group at McGuire Woods. I've been with the firm since 2006. And back when people went to offices, I was based out of the Chicago office. In my practice, I represent borrowers and lenders uh, and advise them on commercial lending transactions. And I am one of a group of folks who is heading up the firm's efforts with respect to the Main Street Lending Program. My name is Kayla Marty. I am also an attorney with McGuire Woods. Unlike Clayton, I'm based out of the Charlotte, North Carolina office, and I'm in our healthcare group. So I focus primarily with various private equity firms, hospitals, and large physician practices, both on acquisitions that they are looking at and also on potential debt relationships, including questions that they've had about the Main Street Lending Program. Great. So I appreciate you guys joining us. And one topic that we hear a lot of questions about coming from our clients and relationships in the market are how to take advantage of certain programs that people read about, believe are rolling out, and in some cases have been enacted from the federal government in order to provide more liquidity, stimulus, and capital to companies to help them through the pandemic response and the economic contraction that they're coping with, and generally to help shore up their balance sheets and prepare the companies, hopefully for growth, but at a minimum, give them some defensive protection against uncertainty here as people map out next steps in the the coming weeks and months of operating a business in this environment. So um, an interesting program that was rolled out by the Federal Reserve, not the Treasury Department, was called the Main Street Lending Program. And I think for most people, they may not be paying attention to it, We're recording this here on May 15th because the Paycheck Protection Program that was rolled out by the Small Business Administration under the Treasury Department has certainly grabbed a lot of headlines. So we'll talk a little bit about comparing those two. But for this conversation, I really wanted to focus on the Main Street Lending Program because it does seem to present an interesting opportunity for companies to get access to a new loan program. And maybe that's a good starting point, Clayton. You know, from from your understanding and for the audience's benefit, could you help everyone understand a little bit more about how the Fed plays a role in the lending market? And maybe a good starting point would be if I if I own a company 
and I want to go borrow money, can I just approach my nearest branch of the Federal Reserve and request a loan? You're going to want to talk to a bank lender. And just to take a step back, this program, the Main Street Lending Program, is referred to kind of generally as something that might exist in the CARES Act. It was first announced in early April when the Federal Reserve issued a couple of term sheets. They received something along the lines of 2,200 comment letters in the weeks that followed. And then at the end of April, they issued updated guidance in the form of three term sheets and an FAQ document, which as of the date we're recording this is the most current guidance we have on the program. And as you noted in your intro, this is a Federal Reserve program. You know, it, it borrows heavily from the CARES Act. It's, in, it's been enacted in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. But this is a very different animal from some of the other CARES Act programs. So this is a program under which the Federal Reserve is going to set up a special purpose vehicle whose sole purpose is to buy eligible loans under the program, buy a 85 to 95% participation in eligible loans. This program is intended to stimulate lending to small and mid-sized businesses that were in sound financial condition before the pandemic. And these are true loans. These are loans that lenders are expected to underwrite in accordance with their existing underwriting standards to assess the creditworthiness of borrowers. This is not sort of federally guaranteed money that is essentially being passed through lenders in the way that the PPP program was and is. The program consists of three different facilities and the terms of those facilities in some ways are the same, but there are some important differences. We have the new loan facility, which is intended to provide uh, loans from between 500,000 and $25 million with a cap on that of four times the eligible borrowers 2019 adjusted EBITDA. There's the priority loan facility, which is the same sort of range, 500,000 to 25 million, but with a six times leverage cap. Both of those facilities are intended to provide new loans that were originated after April 24th. And the third facility is the expanded loan facility, which is designed to provide additional loans or upsized tranches of loans under credit facilities that existed before April 24th. Now, loans under these facilities are going to have four-year maturities. They're going to have interest and principal payments deferred in the first year. They're going to have the same pricing, LIBOR plus 3%. But some of the differences between the programs where we can get into specifics are going to make certain programs more attractive to different borrowers and different lenders than others. And it's going to depend on particular borrower's uh, circumstances, you know, as to which program it thinks, you know, might be a best fit for it. And just in terms of borrower eligibility, this is where we've seen some additional guidance come out. And the additional guidance borrows pretty heavily from the SBA and PPP program in the sense that kind of the main eligibility criteria in terms of size for borrowers is going to be number of employees, and 2019 annual revenues. So if a borrower has 15,000 or fewer employees or had 2019 annual revenues of five billion or less, that's sort of the first eligibility criteria or threshold that they need to, to meet. And one of the ways that the program borrows from the SBA and the PPP program 
in this respect is that the affiliation rules, the affiliation test that went in to determine whether a borrower was eligible under the PPP program or under the other SBA programs, those same affiliation rules and tests apply with respect to borrower eligibility in determining number of employees or annual revenues. The other place that the eligibility criteria borrow from the SBA and PPP program is in this concept of an ineligible business. There are certain business types that are specified in federal regulations as being ineligible for SBA loans, including PPP loans, and the Main Street Lending Program is borrowing some of those ineligible business types for purposes of determining eligibility for borrowers under this program. And I know that... Um it's been a hot topic, especially as some companies felt like they were qualified and are, are feeling pressure and or seeing a policy change from the Treasury Department that's causing them to actually return the money as they feel like either they weren't qualified or weren't the intended recipient. And the big difference is that PPP turns into a grant. You know, the, the money comes in and is intended to be not repaid. Um, if you meet certain requirements, which which is not the case here in the Main Street Lending Program. So it's it's interesting. There's still an eligibility test, but potentially, I would argue, not as much pressure to pay the loan back if, for example, the publicity of taking this money under this program, I would imagine, is not the same since it's still a loan and requires repayment versus the PPP program that, that literally turns into a grant from the federal government. So we had a conversation earlier on, on the accounting side of this and, and thinking through from a financial standpoint, you know, should you do this? Do you, you know, what would be the benefits, the use of proceeds from a, a financial standpoint? And, and one topic that I think is pretty interesting is if you get into the details of the program, there actually are some, you know, requirements and covenants on the borrower that, that are unusual for a bank loan, you know, specifically about use of proceeds and, and probably most unprecedented to me or most most uh, noteworthy is a trailing set of covenants that apply after the loan's been repaid. And Kayla, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, what are your thoughts and what should a potential borrower think about in terms of, you know, adhering to a set of rules and requirements set forth by a lender that survives after the loan has been paid back, after you're no longer a borrower under this program? Yeah, Andy, I think that's our I have been thinking about this as two different sets of people that may approach these post-payoff obligations differently. So there's a set of borrowers that are going to intend to continue operating their business, are never looking for a potential sale transaction, and are really making this decision about whether or not these covenants work for them on their own individual operational basis and their own individual plans for operation as you go forward. In that situation, I think what you're one of the primary covenants that you're referring to is the restriction on certain dividends and distributions other than tax distributions that continue for one year following the conclusion of these applicable loans. So for that single group of borrowers that don't ever plan to go through an acquisition and really just plan to continue their operations in the normal course, I think that that's just a decision they have to think about whether or not it's palatable to their owners and whether or not getting this money is necessary to take on that type of covenant. So, so that's group number one. Group number two, I would classify as the businesses that are considering a potential sale transaction in the future, 
we've seen healthcare companies in the particular area that I work in focus on that heavily if they're potentially want to sell to a strategic buyer or a financial buyer in the future because any post-loan covenant would also have to be disclosed in connection with a sale transaction and the buyer would have to be comfortable with them as well. I've seen that group of potential borrowers shy more away from this program as a result of those restrictions than I do the first group. So I think that the post-loan covenants are certainly something that we don't typically see in the lender space in traditional loans. Um, and it's also something that really could impact a potential sale transaction that we've seen people focusing on heavily. Yeah. I also noticed a real focus on compensation in this program. And I, I'm curious your take on that. So we know a lot of business owners receive compensation, you know, not through payroll. It, it is sometimes a real part of, or, you know, reasonable people can disagree on what is compensation you know, they receive for their role in the business versus what is compensation they receive as a distribution of profits. And oftentimes, if you're the only owner or if all the owners are, are managers or, you know, like a, a partnership type situation, um, it, it's frankly, you know, they're indifferent. But if all of a sudden a lender is going to apply or the Federal Reserve is going to apply a compensation limit, so long as you're a borrower, you know, all of a sudden that does become a, a material point. And I wonder if you guys have a view on that or if you're trying to think about your uh, potential compensation limits under this program, if there are some benchmarks or, or rules of thumb you think people ought to apply when they try to look at their own situation and determine if they're going to fall into that compensation limit category? Yeah, from my perspective, I honestly have not seen people digging as closely into that restriction just because the closely held entities that have a limited number of owners generally have been focusing more on the PPP program and the ability to qualify under that program at this point. Clayton, I'm not sure if you have had other experiences, and I think it certainly will be of potential concern as people continue to move forward and examine this program, but I don't know that I personally have seen people focusing on it as heavily yet because lenders have not started actively digging in and promoting these loans. Yeah, you know, I'd say that's that's consistent with my experience as well. Folks are still, lenders and borrowers alike, are still trying to wrap their heads around sort of how this program is actually going to function. And a lot of folks really haven't sort of dug in, particularly on these on these covenants yet, other than, you know, we have seen some commentary from industry participants here that, you know, question how that would work, why the Fed or a lender has any interest in those things after the loan is repaid. And those are all good questions. Yeah. And it, it seems to be at least based on sort of current guidance and trying to read into that current guidance, more of a thing to make sure that borrowers are thinking about when they get into this as opposed to something that would be subject to an enforcement action, you know, a year after the loan has paid off. Because these covenants, they're described as covenants, but they are really kind of built in up front as certifications that borrowers are required to make in good faith at the time they get the loan. And so it's it's not clear at this point what sort of enforcement mechanisms, if any, and what sort of enforcement capabilities, if any, the Fed would have or would expect a lender to exert. 
One other note about this is that, you know, because these are, in a sense, traditionally underwritten loans, there may be possibilities for, for borrowers in discussing this program with lenders to come up with a different loan that may not qualify for this program, but that might better suit a particular borrower's business if it's, you know, something a lender is, is, is willing to underwrite. And, you know, there's, there's certainly some subtext, you know, for that, you know, this program has very narrow parameters in terms of eligibility and what's supposed to make it attractive to lenders is that the Fed is going to, you know, the Fed's role in this is to remove some of the credit risk associated with these loans as a way to encourage lending. But given some of the open questions about how that participation mechanism, how that sort of credit risk reduction mechanism is going to work, a lot of lenders are thinking about these loans as they're you know, starting to think about how they're under, going to underwrite these loans as loans that they would potentially hold in their entirety. And so if they're already going through that analysis, there may be different loan structures that wouldn't necessarily be eligible under this program, but that might work for borrowers and lenders better. Well, that's, that's good to hear, especially for folks that are worried that this program will crowd out you know, other traditional loan products in the market and become the de facto lending standard for commercial lending. So that, that raises an interesting question, which is, so practically speaking, this is policy, it's a program, it's gone through a review period, they're updating the program at a policy level, but policy doesn't loan money, banks loan money. So what do you guys envision is the practical timeline for this to roll out to a lender, for a lender to create the program, roll it out, and actually start accepting loan applications and funding loans uh, under the Main Street Lending Program? Yeah, so that's, that's kind of the million-dollar question at this point. And Chairman Powell at the Fed has been asked several times in media interviews and in press conferences sort of what he sees as a timeline for this, and there hasn't really been sort of a clear answer. It looks like it's going to be at least a couple of weeks probably before this program really gets kind of up and running. But given that there is a traditional underwriting component to this, there are things that borrowers and lenders can be doing now to sort of position themselves for when this program formally rolls out. I mean, if, if we're talking about sort of sourcing potential loans, borrowers can start looking at their networks, looking at potential lenders under this program and talking to them, asking them about sort of where they are in their process. And if there's a potential for a relationship there to, to sort of grow into a loan facility, there's nothing stopping lenders and borrowers from engaging in an underwriting process to sort of clear out some of the stuff that, that, that would need to be looked at as part of this program anyway. Right. What, what lenders seem to be looking for at this point from the program is some certainty around the participation mechanism and the way in which the Fed is going to offload some of that risk. Right now, the guidance indicates that, you know, the, these, these loans, the participations are supposed to be processed and sold expeditiously after the loan closes. But that gives a lot of lenders pause because they, they have no guarantee right now going into these loans that the Fed is actually going to buy it and what yeah. the assessment of eligibility is going to look like. So one of at least one of the big industry participants in a comment letter that it submitted earlier this week, you know, again, stressed the importance to the Fed of having clarity on this point and asking that the Fed 
put out some guidance that, that, that would push these participations to being done at the time the loan closes, which would give lenders a lot more certainty and, and sort of, I think, really help move this program into you know, something that folks are going to use. But given the sort of traditional underwriting component, there, you know, lenders and borrowers can, can start having those discussions now. Yeah, Clayton, I think it's also worth noting that from a timing perspective, at least under the current guidance, the Fed has said that the program is intended to wrap up by September 30th. So clearly that indicates that unless they move that date back, we hope to start to see some of this program running, rolling out fairly quickly. And then the other point is to your statement that we can go ahead and get start getting rolling on some of the lender requirements. Borrowers should understand that these are the minimum requirements for the loan that the Fed have laid out. Lenders certainly could put other requirements or other guardrails around them in addition to what's in the term sheets. And some of that will have to be driven on a lender and borrower specific basis and can certainly be under discussion, I would think. Yeah, that's absolutely yeah, I right. Say that. The PPP program taught us that one bank is sometimes is not enough. And there were just unfortunately some hurdles put in front of some of the larger institutions that really meant it was easier for mid to small size banks to get through that program more quickly. And, you know, for folks that had begun developing relationships with other banks than just the one that they may have a current banking relationship with, it rewarded them for having those additional lending relationships where they could pivot to someone that could move more quickly. It would also seem in this scenario where there's going to be a tight time frame and potentially a bank that's just better prepared to roll this out, either from a credit policy perspective, whether it's technology or you know, overall level of participation, it would certainly make sense to start talking now to potentially you know, an additional lender or two to start building a relationship, understand what their underwriting criteria is going to look like. You know, oftentimes, you can reuse information you've been pulling together for one lender to explore an opportunity with another. But for now, just it does seem to make sense for folks to diversify their, their bank relationships or lending relationships so that as the policy rolls out and becomes enacted by a bank, you can move quickly to take advantage of this before the window closes. Yeah, and, and just to round out that, that point, you know, unlike the PPP program, under the Main Street Lending Program, lenders are expected to assess the creditworthiness of borrowers, right? So under the PPP program, it was... You check the eligibility criteria boxes. The lender is more or less, you know, acting as a pass-through for for federally guaranteed money. Under this program, lenders are doing their own assessment of creditworthiness, which takes time and which is subject to their underwriting standards. There may be, you know, borrowers who kind of meet the eligibility criteria under this program who don't get a loan or who don't get the maximum amount of a loan, and that's why these kinds of discussions with lenders at this stage can be important just in terms of sussing out sort of how a lender is looking at this program and what its underwriting standards are. That's a good point. So that, that also brings up a good question, Kayla. So let's say I'm a CFO, CEO. I think this program makes sense. I apply for it. I believe at the time, you know, in all good faith that we'll, we'll be able to repay the loan. But then, you know, six months into it, the unforeseen happens and I've got to look at filing for bankruptcy. You know, what, what should I think about? Are my my legal consequences, the lender's recourses, et cetera, under this program. If uh, I want to evaluate this downside scenario, what happens if I have to go look at a bankruptcy filing as a borrower? Sure. So each of the three different programs 
well, let me say two of the programs could be issued on a completely unsecured basis. So that's the Main Street New Loan Facility and the Main Street Priority Loan Facility. So it is possible that in a bankruptcy scenario, those facilities would be unsecured. To the extent that those two facilities are secured, the lender and the government would essentially be on equal basis in a bankruptcy situation. The government cannot be lower in priority or subordinated to an existing loan facility under the terms of those loans if they are secured. And then under the third category, the Main Street Expanded Loan Facility, we're going to have a situation where you likely have security under the underlying loan, and then you have the upsized tranche. The upsized tranche may or may not be secured in addition, but the government will, in a bankruptcy scenario, be entitled to equal footing with the underlying tranche under the expanded loan facility. So I think that the considerations are more heavily lender considerations in a bankruptcy scenario than borrower considerations. Um, Clayton, I don't know if you would have anything else to add to that. I think that those those rules have been fairly clear under the terms of the loan sheets that came out on April 30th, or term sheets that came out on April 30th. Yeah, I think that's right. So one of the ways that the new loan facility and the priority facility are different is that the new loan facility all it says, all the term sheets say in terms of priority here is that it can't be contractually subordinated to ineligible borrowers, other loans or debt instruments. And one of the things that has lenders scratching their heads about that is the term sheets say a new loan, a loan under the new loan facility can be secured or unsecured. If there is, if a borrower has other secured or unsecured debt out there, particularly if they have other secured debt that is, you know, was issued long before this program and has you know, effective priority because it was the, the first to be perfected. Lenders, even in that case, till, you know, still tend to want some sort of contractual mm-hmm. arrangement with a lender that comes into the capital structure later. And it's not clear from the current guidance whether that's something that could be done. The guidance on this point tends to focus on a loan under the new loan facility being subordinated or junior in priority to a borrower's other unsecured loans or debt instruments. So a scenario in a bankruptcy where this this loan is somehow contractually subordinated to a piece of debt, a piece of unsecured debt or an unsecured obligation that it wouldn't otherwise be junior in priority to. For the priority facility and the expanded loan facility, the guidance says that the eligible loan has to be senior to or peri pursue with the borrower's other debt in terms of priority and security. Mortgage debt is specifically carved out of this, but this again raises some, some questions, but it, it tends to put the loans, the eligible loans under these facilities in a bankruptcy scenario as being at least at the same level as the borrower's other existing debt. And with the expanded loan facility, there are additional complications in terms of internal waterfalls. If there's an existing credit facility, for example, you know there may be payment priorities built into that existing facility in terms of which debt gets paid back first, under which scenarios and which debt is entitled to you know, collateral proceeds under which circumstances. And that is all going to have to be managed with 
any loan that comes in under the expanded facility in terms of rationalizing those different priorities. And that's going to be a challenge, I think, for a lot of lenders. But there's a little bit of a different focus between these facilities in terms of how they're expected to be treated in a bankruptcy scenario. But it's certainly something that a borrower going into this program should be thinking about. It should be thinking about how new loans under this program, how eligible loans under this program are going to be, how they're going to coexist with whatever other debt a borrower has. Yeah, it points to the need for companies to consult with a very qualified legal team to explore these options so they really understand what they're signing up for if they choose to participate and likely juggle and manage all of their lending relationships to make sure that this works across the whole balance sheet and all the lenders who are involved in a lending relationship in the event they head towards a, a default. Andy, I think that planning is even more important in the Main Street expanded loan facility, like what Clayton described a few minutes ago, because of the potential to have some non-eligible lenders in a multi-lender loan facility that we know at least some of our clients that we've talked to do have. And the only lenders that can make the upsized tranche are eligible lenders. So it is possible that under the Main Street Expanded Loan Facility, you could have eligible lenders making the upsized tranche, and you may have people that are not eligible lenders in the underlying loan facility. And so if you were to have that situation as a borrower, I think that you would need to start these discussions and and heavily focus on them during the process of going through underwriting so that you would understand how that waterfall would play out that Clayton mentioned, because I think that it can become even more complicated in that scenario than under the other two new loan programs that would only involve eligible lenders. That's a good point. That's a great point. And and, and potentially, you know, you guys have unearthed maybe an unintended consequence here or, or unexpected complexity in trying to enact this when you have a, a multi-lender loan facility. I did want to maybe take a step back and and ask a question that's perhaps top of mind for my firm, for sure, and and the companies that come to us and are looking for sources of capital to help them fund an acquisition. We we do see in this market now um, some smaller companies who are just more well-prepared for a a downturn or disruption in their business are frankly in need of a buyer. That's an outcome they look for. And when buyers see a program like this come out, you know, they're always interested in funding an acquisition with debt if they can to avoid diluting their equity to finance a transaction. And I wonder if you guys have a view on whether or not this program, you know, A, was intended for that purpose to help fund an acquisition and B, if you think under the rules as they're set forth, it could be used for that purpose. And, and I'd go even a little bit further to say, do you think it's possible for a buyer to present a pro forma, a combined financial statement and say, I'd like to borrow money under the six times you know, EBITDA multiple, but I'd like the lender to consider our pro forma combined EBITDA as the, the borrowing base and consider what the financials will look like on a combined basis and use that as our input into the, the amount that we're able to borrow under this program. One of the interesting changes, the initial guidance to the updated guidance was sort of removal of this needs-based certification, which as folks have seen has caused quite a bit of heartburn in the PPP space, right? So the the initial term sheets for the Main Street Lending Program included among the required borrower certifications that the 
exigent circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic made it such that they needed this these loan proceeds to continue to operate their business. It hasn't gotten as much attention as I would have thought, but that certification was removed in the updated guidance, and it seems to have been replaced, at least in part, with an emphasis on the sound financial condition of borrowers. And that shift in emphasis comes in both the description of the program from the feds or the overall description, where they now seem to focus on who this program is for in terms of small and mid-sized businesses that were in sound financial condition before the pandemic. And then one of the required certifications that's new is that borrowers have to make a certification in good faith at the time they get the loan that given their current obligations and liabilities and the additional obligations and liabilities that they're taking on with the loan under this program, that they expect to be able to continue to meet those obligations and liabilities for at least the next 90 days and won't be filing for bankruptcy in that time. So this shift in emphasis from need to financial condition, I think, provides some additional flexibility in terms of how these in terms of how proceeds of loans under this program can be used. There is some emphasis in the guidance on, at least in part, using these loan proceeds to maintain employee levels and, and payroll levels, things like that. But it's not spelled out as an explicit requirement in terms of use of proceeds. With the priority loan facility, which was something that was part of the new guidance, it wasn't part of the original guidance, there is a permitted use of proceeds at the time a loan is made under that facility to refinance other existing debt. That is a use of proceeds that's not permitted under either of the other two facilities. And it's not a, it's an exception from the kind of priority and repayment requirements that apply generally across all the facilities where any, any loan under this program, as long as it's outstanding, it essentially gets first dibs on any payment, right? And except for any, mandatory payments under other existing loans that are due whether by default or acceleration but not sort of voluntary prepayments. And so there there are some some exceptions here but in terms of you know using debt to fund an acquisition given the sort of I think the guidance is relatively clear here on sort of what numbers uh, lenders would be looking at in terms of the leverage cap it is really kind of 2019 adjusted EBITDA and the methodology that a lender uses to adjust EBITDA for purposes of determining you know, loan size here has to be a methodology that the lender used before April 24th. And it has to be a methodology either if a lender has an existing loan with a particular borrower, it has to be a methodology that they used with that borrower before April 24th, or if they don't have an existing loan with that borrower, it has to be a methodology that they use to similarly situated borrowers before April 24th. And so it's going to be a very sort of fact and circumstances specific analysis, but if a lender has a methodology that it used for this borrower or similarly situated borrower that sort of allowed them to use sort of pro forma EBITDA adjustments, taking into account an acquisition, there's certainly there certainly seems to be at least some flexibility for that. But if there isn't that sort of methodology that was already in place, it's a harder argument to make. Got it. Well, that is helpful. And it's, it's, 
great uh, that you thought through it that way. Yep, Kayla? Thank you. And I would also say a lot of people, at least that we've spoken with, have approached the potential use of these funds to from a perspective of money is somewhat fungible. So although these funds, the more conservative approach may not be to use them for acquisitions, I think it is commonly accepted that these funds could likely be used for ongoing operations to help maintain and respond to coronavirus impacts, which may free up other funding for use in other ways. So I think that that's one other way that people have been approaching it, even if they're not going to be using these direct funds to fund the acquisition. Yeah, I think that's right. And again, just to distinguish this from the PPP, so the PPP had a very sort of explicit set of uses for the proceeds in terms of what was permissible and what was forgivable. You know, because this isn't a forgivable loan, right? I don't think we would expect to see the same sorts of limitations on use of proceeds. And because it's, it's, not sort of a needs-based certification in the way that the PPP was, I think, again, we'd expect to see some some more flexibility in terms of how the proceeds can be used. Good color. And uh, again, you know, I think it would, it's quite clear to me, at least, that uh, companies ought to engage a qualified counsel to help them understand the risks and the uh, acceptable uses. And, and I would argue, too, I mean, it's it's incredibly hard as a banker to really get into, you know, tracing every dollar that comes in and when you're trying to do a sources and uses, it, you know, it's hard to say that, well, this source only went to this one use while that other source went to another. And that becomes quite the philosophical argument, as you said, when at the end of the day, money is fungible. But from our perspective, we're optimistic. It, it, the bottom line is it puts more liquidity into the lending system. It hopefully encourages lenders to restore their uh, ability to provide credit to the market, to, you know, make sensible underwriting decisions, but hopefully this removes one constraint they might have around uh, their concern about the future repayment uh, capability of a company. And from our perspective, restoring lending into this market um, would be very helpful for us as we see a lot of great companies who we think have you know, very strategic acquisitions they'd like to execute. And especially if they're pairing up with a private equity sponsor to facilitate financing that, they, they almost all essentially require some level of debt support a transaction just for it to make sense from everyone's perspective in terms of a, a return on their investment and, you know, just the right mix of, of credit, of debt and equity to make the numbers tie together from their perspective. So we're, we're hopeful this program has that intended outcome. Uh, I'm also hopeful that as we, you know, roll the clock forward 30 days, I hope we're able to maybe revisit this with you guys on a future Deal Talk podcast and, and talk about uh, success stories and hopefully some clients of yours and ours having successfully navigated this program and, and obtained credit and loans that help execute um, their growth and uh, navigate these uncertain times. So I, I want to um, wrap up by saying I, I really appreciate the time and the insight. We'll post some show notes for folks that are accessing this through the Seven Mile website and uh, you know, encourage everyone listening, uh, if you have follow-up questions, to reach out you know, directly to Clayton and Kayla or, or myself, we're always happy to continue this conversation and talk about your specific situation and see if there's a way that we can be helpful. So th thank you again. I, I really appreciate it and look forward to revisiting this and hopefully talking about um, the actual outcome of the market here sometime soon. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. 
You'll find more information and resources based on today's discussion exclusively on our website. If you're looking to dive deeper into today's topics, head to 7mileadvisors.com to speak to one of our bankers today. That's the number 7, M-I-L-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. 7M Securities does not make any investment recommendation for any company or security that was discussed, nor does the firm offer any tax advice. Consult your tax advisor for any tax matter that might apply to you or your business. 